Welcome to the Pope on Film. I am Bunny Williams, and with is yes, I am the Pope in question. My name is Reverend Steve. I am the founder of the Church of Ed Wood, which is an actual thing worth a Google. It is episode two hundred and seventy-nine of the podcast. Yes, yes. Little Lebowski Urban Achievers and proud we are of all of that. Last week, I pointed out the fact that the intro is never cut separately. So the only way that one would hear the intro... So so there, it's a big, long podcast, and you release the big, long podcast as one thing, but then you also cut it up into little, tiny, separate bits. So when it comes to the introduction, the only way someone would be able to hear it is if they listen to the entire podcast. So last week, I hid something in the intro, and it was a game where let's see how many times I will say this one thing during the podcast, and that was a lot of fun. That was, yes, a, whole was. Bunch, that was a whole bunch of fun, and it was a game, and the only way that you could really play it is if you listen to the full podcast, and I really like that. So I'm only going to say this once in the introduction, and I am not going to say it again through the entire podcast. I am really fucking high right now. I am like, I, I had an ad. I'm working on it. Yeah, I had an edible, and then it, it was in the morning because I was really stressed out. And then I and then I said, you know, I, I'm going to take a bath, and I'm going to put some uh, bath salts in there. And uh, I'm pretty sure the edible has worn off, but apparently it didn't because the edible and the bath just came together and made super high, Steve. Yes. And I am really fucking high right now, and this will be the last time that I mention it. So if I'm acting weird and crazy throughout the rest of the podcast, the only way that you'll understand it is if you listen to the full episode of the Pope on Film. So this is a fun, if you are listening to this part, congratulations. You found the hidden secret, the hidden key for the rest of the episode. I'm really fucking high, but it's episode 279, and let's get to it. Hey! Yes. I would like to start off this 279th episode of the podcast by eulogizing someone. Eulogizing someone, okay. Not something we normally do, but I believe that this person's death is an important one. I fully believe that this man's death should stand as a lesson about politics. So... The man's name, I did not know this man, but I know a lot about this man. This man's name was Donald P. Tice. White guy, lots of tattoos, lots of cowboy hats in his closet. He was born and raised in Alaska. As far as I can tell, he was born and raised in the city of North Pole, Alaska, which is apparently a place... Population 2,100, small place. He worked at Alaskan Legacy Construction, LLC. He had a son and a daughter. He was a tall, big, meaty guy that seemed to be, for all intents and purposes, a well-liked guy. His Facebook page is relatively open. There's a lot of personal stuff that I can't see because uh, of... uh, 
some things are, are, are open to the public and some things are not. But um, his Facebook page is relatively open. A number of, of personal posts hidden to non-friends, but a lot of his memes are public for people to see. Donald P. Tice was a far right wing guy. Yes. Super far. So far, there's pro-Trump memes. There's pro-Kyle Rittenhouse memes. You know that the right has lost their way when they're celebrating a literal murderer. Yes. You know? And a non-surprising number of memes that have been fact-checked as untrue. One fun thing about going through Donald P. Tice's Facebook page is that a lot of it has been fact-checked. And that's fun to see. I can't believe that the left would do this. And then below that, you know, it's like scrolling through uh, Donald Trump's Twitter page. Just so much of it is like hidden or fact-checked. And it's nice to know that that's happening. There's also a lot of uh, racist content, which is not surprising coming from a Trump supporter. This is right. 20- In fact, most of his photo in most of his photos, Donald P. Tice wore long sleeves. But in one very popular photo of his, he is showing off a very gaudy Trump tattoo on his hand and arm. And apparently he forgot to crop it properly because you can clearly see a Nazi Iron Cross tattoo. Okay. On his usually covered left arm, so uh, very right wing, very right wing. The kind of white man, the kind of straight white male who has probably never read a comic book, but definitely owns about six different Punisher shirts. Yes. You know, you know, I remember when if you wore a Punisher shirt, that meant that that you were nerdy and into comic books, not that you have a gun and could kill somebody. Yes. There's a big cultural shift there, but anyway. Uh-huh. Don, what I'm saying is Donald P. Tice is the type of white male that definitely owned a, a, a couple of guns and a Harley Davidson that he probably treated better than his girlfriend. Probably, yes. Yeah. Remember, I, I quite understand the type. Yeah. Remember when motorcycles meant that you were a badass counterculture rebel? Yeah. Remember that? Remember you saw a man in a motorcycle? Oh, man. He dodged the draft. And now he travels across America with just the clothes on his back getting into fights and now you see a motorcycle and it's like oh that's a six year old man with disposable income who's probably yeah. on his way to Cracker Barrel okay like like now I see motorcycles as white privilege it's really interesting to think of the way I thought of motorcycles in like the 80s and the way I think of motorcycles now you know yeah. that's interesting that is interesting to me that's just a little and, and bikers and, and just bikers in general, you know, like bikers started off with a real shit represent rep, rep, bleh, reputation. Yeah. With the Hells Angels and Hunter S. Thompson didn't help with that situation. He portrayed the Hells Angels as a very violent group. A violent yeah. anarchistic group. Then we kind of got into 
Honda Motorcycles. And Honda Motorcycles started a whole ad campaign so that people would buy their motorcycles and they wanted to separate themselves from the Harley driving bikers. Yeah. So they started a campaign like late 60s, early 70s, maybe. Yeah. You meet the nicest people on a Honda. And it would show ordinary people pulling up oh, at a gas station or, or anything like this and meet another person on a Honda. And they were just absolutely nice and wonderful to each other, completely, totally non threatening. Yeah. And then bikers started picking up more and more of that representation where we're like, no, we're not violent. We are just motorcycle enthusiasts. Yeah. Right. You know? Um and we believe very much in freedom or you know, kinda you know whatever. Yeah. And we really started looking at bikers as a group in a much better light than we had previously. Yeah. And Trump has blown that all straight to shit. No, yes, they're right wing Nazi biker yes. freaks. Yeah. Just like any other right winger. Yeah. You yeah, know, and so, if there are biker gangs out there, oh, you got the awesome sun coming through the window again. They do. If if there are non-Nazi Nazi bikers, please fucking speak up. You know? Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't want to have to have anything against bikers. There there was a time where I thought bikers were just cool. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like, oh, you have disposable in income. Now I see motorcyclists and it's like, okay, you're 50 or 60 years old. You're a white guy. You're married to a Karen. You voted Trump. Yeah. Um, you, you own a went and died in Sturgis. Yeah. You definitely have a Harley Davidson in your garage that you treat better than your wife. Yeah. You want to know? You want to know how far right uh, Donald P. Tice was? He had a parlor account. He had a parlor account. Oh, yes, parlor. Oh, okay. So Donald P. Tice was a strong Trump supporter, which might make this next part surprising. I fully believe that Donald J. Trump killed Donald P. Tice. Donald, okay. Donald Trump killed Donald Tice. I, I, I'll take that ball and run with it, but but what is your reasoning, sir? Like most right-wingers, Donald P. Tice was an anti-masker, and as the coronavirus ravaged the globe, Donald P. Tice was on Facebook sharing memes all about how the coronavirus wasn't real. In September, he shared... Um, a meme, mommy, why aren't we wearing masks? Because bullshit comes in through your ears, honey, not your mouth. On September 8th, he shared the meme, your mama's so ugly, the whole world faked a virus just to make her wear a mask. On, yes. August, on August 4th, he wrote, so you want me to wear a mask to protect your health? Do you want me to jog to help you lose weight too? 
On July 7th, Donald P. Tice wrote on his Facebook page, what we now understand about COVID-19 is that it has been a planned total fraud. On June 28th, he shared an article from The Federalist about how masks are about evil socialists demanding control over people. Uh, Donald, Donald P. Tice was a product of the far-right machine. He drank Donald Trump's Kool-Aid, and due to people like Donald Trump and Breitbart and One American News and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck and Parler, Donald P. Tice fully believed, was taught to believe, thanks to Donald Trump, that the coronavirus was a big hoax. So I fully believe that people like Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, Rupert Murdoch, Prager University, Breitbart, The Federalist, OAN, and yes, Donald Trump are to blame for Donald P. Tice's death. Donald P. Tice died on November 9th due to complications from what? From the goddamn coronavirus. Oh, God, okay. This is exactly what Alanis Morissette was trying to tell us about. Yeah. Donald P. Tice being a far-right, angry, racist, Trump-supporting anti-masker who believed that the coronavirus was fake only to die of the coronavirus is like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. Like, he's, he's, he's... Here's some advice, okay, people, from someone who had the coronavirus. Wear a mask, wash your hands, social distance, and take the goddamn coronavirus seriously. That's good advice that Donald P. Tice didn't take, and now he's dead. I spent, like, a day diving into this man's life, and uh, it it upsets me. Uh, Here's... So... There are two posts that perfectly illustrate this story, and I've trying I've been trying to share them everywhere that I can because uh, I think it's important. So here's uh, here's his post from August fifth. He wrote, "I have a plan. Inject me with the coronavirus. If I die, then all of your paranoid bullshit is legit. If yeah. I don't die." Then you all are fucking deceived political pawns. Let's go bring it. Alaska as one, America as one. So here he is on uh, November eighth. Uh, he posted on Facebook a requiem to all my friends, family, and acquaintances. I love you all passionately. I am in Providence Hospital ICU fighting COVID complications. Each day, my lungs are getting worse. I may be on the ventilator tonight. That pretty much means the end. My body, heart, and all else is healthy. Just my lungs are dying at peace. Just my lungs are dying. At peace, I know where I'm going to when it comes. I do hope y'all know your truth, too. Love everyone. Now, here's the kicker. He ends it with, President Trump, fight the good fight. Break down the left's fraud. Make America great again. Dude, Donald Trump killed you. Yeah. He died knowing that the coronavirus was real and still died his last dying breath supporting Donald Trump. 
even as he died of the, of the coronavirus, which he insisted was a left-wing host hoax, Donald P. Tice wrote Break the Left's Fraud. And, and it, it upsets me so much that like even while he was in a hospital on a ventilator dying, he still backed Donald Trump, the man whose toxic rhetoric killed him. Yeah. I've been obsessed with Donald P. Tice for basically this entire week. I, I obviously took a deep dive onto the man's Facebook page and he, he died of a disease that Donald Trump and the right wing media told him was fake. And I and I, I'm I, I can only assume that part of the reason why I've been my obsession about Donald P. Tice just comes from the fact that I got the coronavirus. My whole family got the coronavirus. And I I legitimately thought that I would die. Yeah. Or that we would die, or that one of us would die, and I and and I and I think I have more PTSD now because of it. Yeah, like PTSD to the 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 dark. What is it? The dark world. That was the dark to, world. Yeah. yeah. To the dark world, and it just upsets me that there are so many Donald P. Tices out there. Yes, you know, and it yes. really upsets me. The only positive that I can see from from the last four years, and especially this election, is that now we have a pretty good. Forty-seven percent of Americans voted for Donald Trump and all yes. he's doing this entire time is just gaslighting people. And, and like, that's a fuckload of people. And that really has to be considered. Okay. You know, I mean, half of this country has decided to not believe anything whatsoever. The other half said, you guys, while yeah. pushing for a fascist state, yeah, the only that's positive, where we are. The only positive that I can see is that now we know the exact percentage of America who would fall for the Jedi mind trick. Oh fuck yeah! You know, because Donald Trump is literally out there talking about himself to his followers. Like Joe Biden must be stopped. His crime family, his his kids are just cashing in on his name. We need to stop Joe Biden. He is sick. He is a predator. He wants to have sex with his daughter. And when I saw him in Home Alone 2, it made me sick. Like, like it's obvious what he's doing, you know? Yeah. It's obvious, but so many people have drank the Kool-Aid, and there are so many Donald P. Tices out there. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And it's really sad, and I'm trying to let people know about Donald P. Tice. I know that the man is dead, and he wouldn't like this, but like, it's shocking that a far-right winger thought the coronavirus was fake, died of the coronavirus, and died of the coronavirus, still supporting Donald Trump. Like, yeah. So I'm trying to use his life and his death as an example of like, dude, 
The coronavirus doesn't care if you don't believe in it. (laughs) You know, it's a disease. It doesn't give a shit whether or not you think it's real. It'll still fucking come for you. It's a goddamn virus. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is that is that anything that we have to say, we can literally back up with facts. Yeah. And they don't have facts for anything. It's just Yeah. Believing anything you yeah. want to believe. Yeah. You know, like really, what do you what needs to happen for you to believe in the coronavirus? Yeah. How many people have to fucking die for you to believe in the coronavirus? Why would anybody lie to you about this? We yeah, don't want you getting sick. It's we really don't want you dying. And they have a problem with that. I don't fucking get it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand. But like I, I spent I spent probably about a literal twenty-four hours just diving into the life of Donald P. Tice. Yeah. And it just upset me. Yeah. And I'm trying to use his life as an example to people that like, hey, you can yell and scream at the left all you want about uh, the coronavirus and mask mandates. And like I saw I I saw some guy on Twitter that said, imagine having such privilege that the worst oppression you've ever felt. Yeah. Is wearing one mask. You know, like, like when I was a kid and I would play with, with the neighbor kids, we would play outside and we'd be, we'd be, uh, you know, on our bicycles and playing with action figures. And then it's like, Hey, let's go into my house. Uh, We we can watch Nickelodeon. Oh, Steve, you're not allowed in my house. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, allowed to play with the other kids because I was the only brown kid and everyone else was white and I wouldn't be allowed to play with the white children but oh yes explain to me about how oppressive it is for you to wear a face mask you fuck yeah. very upsetting very upsetting so I have PCSD now Post-corona stress disorder. I've termed, I, I've coined that phrase. Yes. And it's difficult. And I think for, it covers it. Yeah. It's difficult for me to have gotten coronavirus and then gotten over it. And then it's like, hey, I got over it. Hey, this is positive. This is, hey, happy times. Let's party. We got over it. And that's great. Let me check Facebook. And then, oh, this person just died of the coronavirus. Oh, look, this person's grandmother just died of the coronavirus. Oh, someone shared an article about the dangers of the coronavirus after you've caught it. And it's just like, like, I feel like I'm almost as scared, if not more scared, now that I've gotten it yeah. than before when I was trying to avoid it. You know? What was the term that you said? Post COVID syndrome. It's an actual thing. And I. Is it an actual thing? Yes. yes. It is People, I, I, dude, I've been forgetting words. I've been losing words all over the place. Uh, yeah. I mean, I. 
flighty and I might get high, but like I I don't lose words like it. Like it took me almost an hour and a half um, Friday when I was at supervision to remember a word, and I just like I couldn't couldn't do it. Uh, but there's uh, there's a lot of documentation about people having cognitive issues after they have had COVID, cognitive issues that they didn't have before it. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's just cognitive. There's multiple physical issues and health issues that have come out after you have COVID and get better from it. So like the, people are going to be, it's like polio. People are going to be living with this for years to come. For the rest of their lives, they're going to have to suffer because they caught this disease. Because yeah. America sucks. Because Trump is a fucktard. Because Missouri is 95% capacity beds filled in their hospitals and they still won't put a fucking mask mandate in place. Like, this is the country we live in. America. But, okay, but but what, what is, what what are your insights into the psychology behind this? What is making these people? I mean, they're beyond any kind of reason. What is making people what? People like Donald P. Tice. Like, like what's the psychology behind the Trump cult, basically? What was the psychology behind uh, Adolf Hitler? What? What was the psychology behind that? Why did people follow Adolf Hitler? He was charismatic, right? He he appealed to the people. And, and, the and, and he's he's he, Donald Trump in this specific case is please don't touch that. Is he appeals to people who are a dying breed, well maybe not so dying as divided as our country is. Uh, and he riles them up and he he wraps it up in his first uh, amendment right of freedom of speech because right. he's just himself and he's appealing to all those people who say you know we don't need any more politicians we need somebody who's a regular person like us well donald trump is not a regular person but he wants to pretend he's a regular person maybe sure you eat mcdonald's five nights a week you know and taco bell two nights so yeah you are appealing to your base but like he's not a normal person and he's also not a politician he's a failed businessman and he has bankrupt bankrupt america but the thing is is that they connect with him on certain things like racism. I mean, fucking, what was it? What did you say? 51%, 49% of white women voted for him. How are you going to vote against your best interest? He's good at twisting things. He's good at manipulating people. Mm. And he's good at making people go against their own best interest. Yeah, but, but like, there's one big difference between Nazi Germany and now, okay? In Nazi Germany, when you wanted to say some shit, you didn't have the other half of the country fact-checking you. You know what I mean? Like, well, like I mean, yeah. you, you can, you know, they could deny COVID and there weren't a whole bunch of people to tell them, no, that's not true. Okay, but you also have this person that is denying COVID, he started his entire campaign talking about everybody again. Okay, um, Hillary said it best. When he's down in the lurch and he needs to turn shit around, he's good at twisting it. You know, fake news or yeah. you know, people are uh, I can see him losing words. Um, 
basically he's putting himself as that please go I'll, I'll come in the room in just a minute he's putting himself as the victim and, and america is his savior his base is his savior you have to vote him out but he's also the savior the only savior and he's he's appealing to that far-right christian mentality of uh, let's see remember my aunt my aunt used to call obama the antichrist yeah yeah, yeah. no she on the Antichrist, and she said that if he ever won, that you know, it's the coming of the end of the world, and blah blah blah, revelations, yada yada yada. This is my crazy religious family, and it didn't happen. But now people are appealing to the whole he's the savior, he's the one that can fix all this. Fix this means he's going to get all the brown people out of the country, even though the white people stole it from brown people in the first place, uh-huh. and you know, keep white people in power and keep the poor poor. And keep uh-huh. locking up black people for minor drug offenses. You know, like, yeah. I don't know what the fucking psychology is. I don't understand because I'm a very logical and rational person. But if you have the person telling you, this is all fake news. Everybody's against me. These are all lies. You watch. If this happens, this is why. And they're believing it because they yeah. want because they want his America. And so no matter if you come at them with facts or not, they're going to say that's fake news. You come at them with science, they're going to be like, oh, I don't know if that's true. Okay, well, you might not believe the science, but the science believes you. Okay, believes in you. And you're going to because COVID's going to fucking come for you no matter what. Yep. And these people, they just, he is their embodiment of their America. And, and sooner or later, you know, so, so, you know, go ahead, get rid of all the brown people, go ahead and get rid of all the Jews, get, get rid of all the liberals and progressives and everything else, you know, and it just doesn't stop there because then, then you're going to have a complete nation of fascist Trump supporters who are going to then turn on the ones that are in the trailer parks. Exactly. And then start going after them and start eating themselves. Exactly. Because they always have to have an enemy to fight against. Because that's how exactly. you unite people in your base. Is you start a war, pretend or real, so that they'll get behind you no matter what. Yeah. Because they think that they're doing the right thing. Because you've told them they're doing the right thing. Even though you've blinded them to the fact that you're actually the evil. And how do we fix this shit? I mean, you know, that's the fucking thing. I mean, this is like half the fucking country. We've got to do something about this. Yeah, no, the numbers are sad. So disappointing. Yeah. But I read and I I don't I don't have a link to give you, but I read a great write up uh, that said, yeah, it would have been nice to have all the MAGA idiots realize how fucked up Trump is and throw down their hats and vote blue. But that won't happen until it's too late because they can't see the atrocities that are coming because they haven't been able to open their eyes to everything fully now. So in order for them to turn the tide and say, oh, you know what, maybe not, he has to cross the line. But he has set the line so far away People won't see it until it's way, way too late to recover from it. Yeah. You know? And so that's why still almost half of America wanted to vote for Trump. Because they don't see it the way that everybody else does. 
he set the bar so low that during a presidential debate, if he literally took his pants off and shit in the middle of the debate stage, the media would have been like, well, we expected him to take three shits and they only took one. So is this a shift in the president's tone? Yeah. Or they would have tried to interview the fucking shit on the stage or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I don't have solutions for how to end it except for let's go back in time and kill Trump. But, you know. But I feel... Or the fact that he is... Um, I mean, in Supernatural canon, Trump is a um, Leviathan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Saying, like, yeah. That would explain so much if he was... At, you know? Well, I'm hoping that by spreading the word of Donald P. Tice, then maybe I can yes. change a mind or two because this was one of them. Yeah. You know, he was a far right winger, and mm-hmm. angry white man, and he still got the coronavirus and he still died. And like, hey, let this be a lesson. Take the coronavirus seriously. You know, it listen yeah. to the left when they are talking about how dangerous no. this is. No, don't listen to the left. Listen to the fucking scientists who have the facts of the story. Yeah. Don't even make it political. This is not a political fucking issue. But it's political to them. This is a health issue. This is a, the world is falling to fucking pieces about to, I mean, it's literally burning in places. Places are flooding. Places are getting hands and being destroyed. We are, you ever thought that there was an end days? This is it. We're living in it because Trump, not Obama, like everybody thought, because of Trump. This isn't about politics. This is about humans. This is about survival. Yeah. But nobody wants to fucking listen. Yeah. Sorry. Um, it's okay. Come yeah. come back. Come back for bunny verses. Okay? Okay. Because that's that's the more appropriate section of the show. <laughs> well, well, I wanted to spend all of Act One just talking about Donald P. Tice. So yeah. So I had other cute little stories, but I just wanted okay. to focus on this guy. I, well, just I mean wanted, and the, uh, the politician that won after he died. Hey, we'll be talking about that oh, uh sorry. next okay. week. Okay. Next week. <laughs> so so that's it for the story of Donald P. Tice. I'm hoping to turn this angry uh, right wing guy into a lesson for other angry right wing guys that, hey, take this seriously, because the coronavirus isn't just attacking people on the left, you know? Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, by looking at the life of Donald P. Tice from North Pole, Alaska, maybe some people will be able to change their tune. Hopefully. Uh, And cut on that. And cut on that. I think that's a good cut right there. Bunny! Yes. We still have a show to get to. We have Bunny Versus. We're going to be talking about sports for Shab. And for this week's movie, I finally understood it. I don't keep into the film, and now I understand it. I understand the film, where it is coming from, what it is. I understand this movie perfectly. I, I I actually took notes. Okay, okay. I, I can't wait to discuss this week's film. But before we get to any of that, maybe we should take a break. Should we take a break? We should take a break. I concur. 
We will be right back with more of the Pope on Film after this. Do, 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 and break. This is all. Boffo box office is what we're talking about. Creation of the humanoids. Out of the atomic war came the perfect man. The humanoids. Man's own creation. Physically and mentally perfect. Created to serve their masters, men and women. But could man compete with this creation, the perfect man? You love that, that machine? I love Pax. He's dedicated to keeping me happy. And I am happy. The robots are machines. They must be made to look like machines. The perfect man, created by man, becomes man's worst enemy. Proceed! The most provocative story ever filmed. The most unusual story ever filmed. You must see it to believe it. The creation of the humanoids. The perfect man. And we're back with more of the Pope on film. Buddy. Yes. Are you ready for another exciting installment of Bunny Versus starring the incomparable, the legendary Bunny Williams? Are you ready? Are you pumped? Are you amped? Are you psyched? Are you, are you primed? Are you ready? Are you ready to do it? Are you ready to take it? Are you ready to to, to bring it around town? I, I I think I need this. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well then, without any further ado, it's time once again for Bunny Versus. And now here is your host, Bunny Williams. Take it away, Bunny. This episode of the Pope on Film requires more drugs. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Very much so. So how are you? I'm alright. I'm alright. Uh, I've got some serious uh, issues with uh death and the coronavirus that I've learned about recently, so that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, this is, besides that, though, I guess everything's okay. Uh, a YouTube channel just ended, and that meant a lot to, to, to Bella and I. Okay. There was a there was a channel on YouTube called Unisonis, and it was sort of an experiment. 
and all right. it was uh, Markiplier, who's very popular, and then another guy, Ethan, who has his own gaming channel. And they decided to start a, a YouTube channel together, and they would post a video a day, weird stuff, crazy stuff, adventures, whatever they wanted. And the whole concept was we will do a video a day for one year. And at the end of that one year, we will delete the channel and delete all of the videos. And, and the whole concept of the channel was memento mori. What would you do with your life if you literally knew the time that you had left? What would you fill that time with? Memento Mori, everyone dies, and and every video began and ended with a clock that counted down the exact amount of time that the channel had left. And Bella really got into it, and she would watch it a lot, and then I started watching it, and then Maxwell was watching it with her, and then Eleanor was watching it with her, and it got to the point where Unis Anis was just this big part of our lives and we really liked it and we watched it all the time and uh saturday fr friday yeah friday the 13th at midnight like pacific time they they did a well they did a 12-hour live stream and at midnight on friday the 13th they deleted the channel and i was surprised yeah. that how moved I was by that, you know, just a year of every day watching these videos and they were really funny and some of them were crappy and some of them were stupid, but just like the, and then, and then seeing the way that so many other people reacted to it, I, I kind of liken it to an upbeat YouTube Midsommar cult. Okay. And so I was surprised at how upset I was when they finally did delete the channel, you know? Yeah. And so many people were like, oh, please don't delete the channel. Maybe the clock can reset, maybe this and that. And, and they said that, like, no, no, that's the whole concept of this. Time is fleeting. All of us have all of us have a clock that is counting down and, and we all have a finite time. And in this entire channel, the, the concept is, is that, you know, we all have this clock and we need to do what we can with it. And so the death of that YouTube channel collided with my own obsession with Donald P. Tice and my uh, coronavirus, my post coronavirus malaise. And, and I don't know, I, I'm, I've got a lot of issues with death right now yeah. that I that I am dealing with. But beyond that, everything's been great. The YouTube channel's been good. Uh, teaching the kids has been good. They had a really good week. Eleanor's been working on her numbers. And so I'm trying to get her to recognize her numbers and she was having a hard time with it. So what I've been trying to do is to just give each number a character. You see five, that's a regular number, but you see that circle there? It's pregnant. <laughs> you see three, that one's easy. What's three, Eleanor? Uh, three butt. It's a butt, that's right. The number three is a butt. Number four has a little pizza in it, and that makes sense because when you cut a pizza, a lot of times you're cutting four slices. So number four is a pizza. Number nine. This guy is a pregnant. 
Oh, yeah, there you go. Number nine is a balloon held by a creepy clown in the sewer. <laughs> so we've been having a lot of fun with that. And uh, uh, this week was the next to last episode of Supernatural, and that was that was a lot. And uh, I don't know. It's been a good week. It's been a good week. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How are you doing, Bunny? Well, let's let's start it a little easy. Uh, I saw okay. three from hell. And 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 apparently, Sean Whalen is in that film. Sean Whalen. Yes. Is He's that who that guy me. was? Sean Whalen is, is so so in Tammy and the T-Rex, there's the angry okay. boyfriend, and then he has his group. Yeah. You know, gang. But one of them has the creepiest smile that you've seen in about 150 different movies. Yes. Which has a small part. He's like a bit actor. Yeah, that's Sean Whalen. He, He's one of was, the gang. Yeah, he was one of the gang. And I'm looking at his credits and I'm like, he was in this TV show and this TV show and this movie 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 and three from hell. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Apparently he's in three from hell. I don't know if I want to watch it again to find out. Really? Tell me all about it because I haven't bothered to see it. Okay. See, I really liked the House of a Thousand Corpses. Okay. Me too. And I really—I mean, it had some problems, but I liked it. I enjoyed it. I liked these characters for the sadistic fucks that they were. And then you go to the Devil's Rejects, which was like a hardcore version of House yeah. of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. Because House of a Thousand Corpses still had a sense of humor about itself. Yeah. And the Devil's Rejects didn't. You know? Yeah. But I was still kind of, I was still interested in watching these people, you know? And it had a very simplistic plot, you know? But it was kind of fun to watch them. You know, the cops show, try to arrest them, they run. They're on the run from the law. That's the fucking movie. Yeah. That's the plot. That's all there is. Yeah. From there, it's a series of situations they get from point A to point B. So we're not talking about a deep movie. You know, but but I still find the characters interesting. And I find it interesting that they grew out of House of a Thousand Corpses. You know? Yeah. But then coming into Three from Hell. Okay. Uh, and on top of it, I like a lot of I like a lot of a lot of other Rob Zombie's zombie works. I, I read think I like more Rob Zombie movies than I don't like Rob Zombie movies. I read somewhere that Rob Zombie is the Rob Zombie of movies. <laughs> yes. I really liked that. That's a good explanation. So first off, that you're going to make a third movie and your plan is to just deus machina them out of 
a horrendous massacre. Yes. That they were okay, you know, but like, okay, Rob Zombie, I like you. I like these characters. I want to see. You know what? I'll give you a miss on that if you give me a good fucking movie. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. I'll forget the end of the last the end of the last movie and oh. go with it. Okay. But you still ask me to fucking swallow a lot here. Yeah. And then this movie was the devil's rejects with no plot at all. I have no idea what they were fucking doing in this movie. It was just like them. You know, baby yeah. was crazier and Ugh. a lot darker. Yeah. Yeah. Sid Haig was gone. Yeah. So it's like completely detached from House of a Thousand Corpses now. You know? And it's like, man, you know, there's so much better you could have done. Yeah. You know? Bring them back as fucking zombies. How about that? Bring them back as ghosts. Any of those would have been a better, would have been a, would have been tolerable. Show them each in a hospital bed unconscious with tubes and everything coming out of them. And show me a movie with these three in hell. How about that? You know, so like they're, they're like half dead, half alive, and they are just in hell. Do something interesting, but but no, the it I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have to say just jump the fucking shark with this one. There's just nothing interesting about it. It's it's nothing that I haven't seen. You know? Yeah. Go go watch Devil's Rejects again. House of a Thousand anything worth it. House of a Thousand Corpses seemed more like tongue-in-cheek sort of lighthearted and then devil's rejects just seemed a bit more hardcore and then i was interested to see like where this third movie fit in to that it like how it fits in so first off they're not dead <laughs> okay so we like just right there we just have to get over it. I mean, even though at the end of the Devil's Rejects, they were riddled with bullets in that convertible for the entire length of Freebird. Yeah. Okay? Nobody can survive getting shot that time. They should have been mashed potatoes. Yeah. Like, there shouldn't have even have been bodies left. After that much bullet fire. Okay. Yeah. But they lived. <laughs> there was like no even like mention of uh, a hospital stay or anything like that. There was talk about a trial and then they were in jail. And I missed something, 
I don't know why Otis didn't go to jail. And they have some pathetic footage that breaks my heart of Sid Haig. Because you could see that this was his last fucking days. He looked like a man who was just about to die. And then he fucking did. Yeah. You know? So, like, I think you could have spared us that shit. You know? And then, of course, Sid Haig is the only one who died in this movie. In the beginning. Yeah. Otis was around free, and Baby was in jail. And Baby was really dark and insane. She's trying to do Harley Quinn now. Basically. Yeah. Okay. But the thing is, is Cherry Moon Zombie is getting older. And I kind of enjoy seeing this. But she's starting to look more like Mother Firefly from the Devil's Rejects. And they did way too many close-ups on her. So you could see, like, wrinkles coming into into Sherry Moon Zombie, you know. And, like, the cute is really starting to wear off now. <laughs> so your sad. cutesy routine is getting kind of weird, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, um, whatever happened to Baby Jane kind of weird. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. Yeah, no, I can picture that in my head. And you and and it is sad because you can tell that that's not really what they're going for, but this is how it's coming off. Yeah. Yeah. But there's really not much worth saying more about this movie. Don't do it. You've seen it. If you've seen The Devil's Rejects, you've seen this movie. All this is kind of just no big deal. Yeah. It it, it it meanders. That may be a good way of putting it. Yeah. The movie just meanders. It's not really going anywhere. Yeah. So, I'd rather not have to see another one of them, and I'm sorry to have to say that. Yeah. That sucks. But also not surprising. Also not surprising. I mean, I don't I don't get Rob Zombie where he could do such good work and then miss it so fucking bad. Like like not just crank out a not just crank out a bad movie or you know, this isn't Scorsese's best work, you know, or something like that. Yeah. He puts out a piece of shit on toast. Like, do you know anything about filming? I mean, I look at your other movies. You do. What happened? <laughs> yeah. I can only assume that part of his problems has to do with the fact that people just won't trust him with a budget anymore. Yeah. So it's like yeah. three for hell. Backed by GoFundMe, you know, like like yeah. that sort of. But then let's get to to kind of the elephants of the room and why we're back on Zoom. 
Yeah. There are a couple of other things there that I just kind of want to talk about. But just before the show, I was going to go and test the, test the screens, make sure everything was ready with the feed. I did a lot to the feed that should have worked perfectly fine. Okay. The, our last stream was close to fucking perfect. Okay. Yeah. We had a small confusion about whether we had sound going out to screens that we shouldn't have had sound for, but we okay. did. So it was okay. And then if you listen to the playback, you have a nasty fucking echo. Yeah, I did. I did listen back to it. You yeah. notice. So, so I'm assuming like, that that's why uh, the last uh, live stream didn't have the most views in the world. I, I I haven't looked at the views. Yeah, I I haven't been looking at the views. Um, but now now I'm like, okay, well, I heard the feedback and it was like, fuck, I should have thought of that. I know what's causing the feedback. It's the microphone. Okay. Because I haven't been using my normal microphone that I've always used for the podcast. Yeah. This one right here, because it's an XLR microphone. Okay. Which you can pick these up at the pawn shop. Thanks to dead garage band. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They get out of high school, they sell off all their equipment and get real jobs. So pawn shops like like where I got this one, fucking guy had a like a milk crate box full of just XLR microphones. <laughs> and I got this one for like I think fifteen dollars. So they're really cheap. And the thing about this microphone is that this is the microphone I always I always used. Now, if you remember back in the previous apartment, how loud the fucking air conditioner was. Yeah. And you would never hear that on the podcast. I mean, I would have to do a little noise reduction, but even just listening to it back, I could not hear the air conditioning. Because this has a very like tight radius and noise reduction and things like that built into it. But it's XLR. I'm now going into the computer, so I need a, a, a USB. And the other microphone is a USB. But that fucking microphone picks up every goddamn thing. So you're, you're echoing. You know, the sound that I'm hearing was going into the microphone and back out again. Yeah. So I got like, okay, well, I know how to fix that. And I went on and I got a uh, and who yeah, knew well. it even actually existed. It is an XLR to USB converter cable. Okay. So this should help with the echo. That was the problem. But I don't know if you're noticing the pattern here, but every time we're having a technical problem like, stream of one type yeah. or another, Good. the problem is a sound problem. 
build to work out. Yeah. Like not get to it's never the video. Yeah. Never the screens or anything like that. So I plugged this microphone in and I didn't test anything, unfortunately. I didn't think of testing anything. And uh, I'm sorry, I knocked the camera down. I got to choose something. It's all fucking distracting me now. Yeah. That good up there. And I spent a good lot of time working on the screens and the actual production of the show. So I added a bunch of screens and things like that, but I didn't touch the cameras and I didn't touch any of the audio. I just made up some additional screens and things like that. <coughs> And then, then, like before showtime, it was like, okay, I have everything together. Let's just give it a test, and everything should be fine. And I do a test, and this is an hour before the show, and there is no fucking sound. And I'm trying to figure out what the fuck, why there is no sound, and I'm checking settings everywhere, and I can't get sound. Now, I, I have a good idea what's wrong, but at that point, there's nothing I could do about it. We have a show. We got to fucking start. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. all I'm doing is stressing myself out further and further. So here we are on Zoom. But the thing is, is that because everything comes down to sound... And everything I've been working on and trying to fix is all about the sound. When I look at my Windows sound, with everything shut down, without without the streaming software running, without Zoom software running, or anything like that, I go in there, I have a fuckload of sound devices. Yeah. So I think basically what happened is I plugged this microphone in and Windows finally decides, all right, look, what the fuck do you want me to use here? <laughs> you know? So if I think I get that cleaned out, that'll fix it. Okay. You know? But I'm going to strip everything down to, to bare minimums and testing step by step of the way. Other than that, the actual screens are coming out beautiful. I, I, uh, well, I have my checklist screen, and that's all it is. It's a checklist, so I could see it in the streaming software while I'm setting up the stream and getting everything ready to go. I could look at my checklist to make sure I'm doing everything. And then what I had been using for what I call the pre-roll screen, which is the screen that I am actually streaming before we actually start broadcasting. 
And it was that Midsommar one with the Pope on film that blinks on and off in the bubbles. Okay. And then I decided it would be really good if we had our theme song there. And I tried that. We streamed like that. And all I could think of is that's got to get as annoying as fuck listening to until we are, whenever we actually start the show. I love our theme song, but it can get on your nerves. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I made a still, just a picture for the pre-roll screen that just says, you know, the Pope on, sh the Pope on film will be streaming shortly. And that's it. I'd like to go back and pretty it up, but that's what that's what the people on Facebook are going to see before the show starts. Now that Midsummer thing, what I did with that is, and I got to do it again because it was a rush job and it doesn't look that great, but I turned it into a title sequence instead. Okay. So that the song plays once. You see in the Midsommar with the flashing Pope on film and the bubbles, and then it would be uh, starring the Reverend Steve Galindo and Bunny Williams. I think that's all it says. And it does that for the length of the theme song. And then we would jump in there. Okay. You know, so it's like, so we have the, the, the still image up, and we're streaming, and you and I are sitting back here. All right, are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, now we're ready to start the show. Then I'll hit the opening, and it'll be that Midsommar with the credits. And as soon as that finishes, I'll hit the Pope on film screen, and we'll go into the show. Yeah. Okay. So I did all that, and that shouldn't have, uh, have affected anything. And they look really good. I've tested them out. Uh, and then it was the normal Pope on film page for the opening and the one shots, the, you know. Um, then, then it goes to the breaks, and I really love this this week's breaks that nobody's getting to see. So they'll see it the next time we stream, and I'll come back around to the to the breaks. Then I decided that I wanted to try to expand what I was doing. Okay, so like all of those screens is what's called a screen collection, okay? And you can have as many screen collections as you would like, and you can export them as a file, so you have them saved, and you can import them, blah, 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 okay? Yeah. So, so far, our scene collection has just been the Pope on film, and all of the scenes have been in there. Okay. Okay. And I just go from screen to screen to screen and click down. 
but that's getting kind of cluttered if I want to be able to expand production. Okay. So what I did is I took the whole thing and I cut it for everything before bunny versus because bunny versus is just going to be the test shot. And then I made a scene collection for bunny versus. And then I made a scene a scene collection for everything that happens after bunny versus. Okay. Yeah. So now and I tested it out and it works pretty nice. So we'll start the show. Pre-roll, title, Pope on film. We're into the show. We're doing the show. La la la. First break, hit the break, roll on the break. When I come back from break in that same collection, I hit the Pope on screen film. Uh, I hit the Bunny versus screen. Yeah. Now the Bunny versus collection starts with the same screen. So when okay. I flip connect, so so it's going to be the Bunny versus screen. Then I'm going to switch collections. And it's still going to be the bunny versus screen. Okay. Okay. And that works pretty well. There's just a brief second where the screen goes black while it loads the other profile. And I, I, I think I can figure out some ways around that. But now bunny versus is a collection on its own. So what I did in Bunny Versus is I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to talk about. And the best way to think about it is I sent it up, set up kind of like a PowerPoint presentation. Okay. So I made a bunch of screens for Bunny Versus for the different things I wanted to talk about. So as Bunny Versus is going, I could switch screens. Yeah. And it had a little picture in the middle, and it had its own little title for the sub, you know, for the subject and all that kind of stuff. And it looked really cool. And then after that, then I would load in the last collection. Okay. Yeah. And that collection would finish out the rest of the show. And the point of this is to try to get it so that we can work in collections and still have it look nice so then we're only working in a, in a single collection okay and we're only using the screens that we need to do it's it's like setting up the bit okay so like it's kind of hard to explain. Okay. okay. So you're doing S Steve's historic approximations. Okay. Yes. And you decide you like my screen. So my screen is still there. Okay. But you want to put up pictures. All right. Yeah. 
So I give you a Steve's Historic Approximation collection that you would work in OBS yourself. Okay. So that you can add pictures. Okay. So you're doing a Steve's Historic Approximation on the Noid. So you're going to want to show a picture of the Noid. Well, you would put that on a separate screen and just switch to the screen. And I think I'm going to drop that there. You'll see okay. it when you see it, and you'll understand better when you see it. Okay. Okay. But it'll make things a lot. It'll make it'll make the show better, and that's really all I'm, what I'm really about with the streaming. And even though it's being really problematic in spots. It's not that hard. It's just these weird problems that are coming up. But once I have those problems straightened out, then we're not going to touch those anymore. Then it's all screens. You know? Yeah. So I take all that shit in a folder, name that folder, don't touch this shit. Mm. And you just do all this stuff underneath it. You know? Yeah. Man, there was a lot I wanted to say. Let me just save it for the rest bunny verses and let me just go on and talk about the breaks and finish up with the breaks. And the thing is, and I hope this is a lot more interesting than what I've been talking about. So I want to back up a bit and talk about having built this new computer. Okay? And the whole point of this is how much moving into a new computer is like moving into a new house or apartment. Yeah. Okay? So the computer's all built, and it's sitting there, and there's nothing on it but windows. This is pretty much when you have gone and you've seen the apartment. You've decided this is the apartment that you want to move to. You sign your lease. And yeah. you have an empty apartment. Okay. So now you go back to where you are currently living. And now you've got to finish packing everything up. Okay. It's and when. since you know you're going to be moving anyway, maybe you start some of this early. You start packing early and things like that. So uh, I will be going through my laptop and being like, okay, uh, Bob's Dirty Shorts. I'm not doing anything with Bob's Dirty Shorts in the immediate future. I'm zipping up that whole folder and I'm archiving it. Um, the Pope on the Pope's hyperactive fun time show. I'm not doing anything with that in the immediate future. I am zipping it up, putting it aside. This is taking everything on the hard drives, 
and putting it into boxes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And what do you start packing first? You, you start with what is all the stuff I am not going to miss for the next month in the moving process. And you pack up all that shit. Yeah. It's like, okay, now it's two weeks. What can I deal with not having for two weeks? Well, maybe I could deal with not having DVDs and Blu-rays and shit like that. Maybe, maybe that, and maybe that all gets boxed up. So this is the same thing. It's just with folders. I'm boxing up things like Bob's Dirty Shorts and all of that, things that I'm not expecting to use in the near future, and I'm putting them on an external hard drive. And then I start moving them over. I pack them into the car. That's the external hard drive, and I drive it to the new apartment and I plug the external hard drive into the new apartment parking the car in front and then carrying those files into that new apartment so now I have a whole bunch of zip files and things like that this is all just stuff in boxes some stuff we leave in the car you know, yeah, some stuff you have to open immediately. And while you're doing it, you want to make sure that everything is organized because you want a nice organized start in your new apartment. OK. And that's what this is. So coming around to doing these breaks. For this yeah. screen. Meant that. I had to open up a lot more boxes that I hadn't opened and a lot of boxes I haven't opened in a while okay. to find interesting, fun stuff for the breaks. Okay. Like what? And it became just this nostalgic walk down, down memory lane, both for the Pope on film and the Church of Ed Wood, and on Dead Cow Studios, and all that. So, I have an outro of you that I did in 2D animation for the Pope's Hyperactive Fun Time, where you're like, we'll be back, we'll be back, we'll be back in a moment. Or maybe we won't be back. Maybe we're going to die. You know? Nice. And it's just a nice, fun little bit. And I'm like, well, fuck it. Why don't I use that to go out on break with? And I had another one of you from there. Um, well, no, not another outro. But I have, I have you doing the Pope on film Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I remember that. I remember that. I love that one. You remember that? Yeah. Yep. 100% remember that. So I have that in there. Cool. And then like a Bob's Dirty Shorts each one. But, you know. um, Oh, man, I can't remember everything. I did them last night and I haven't slept and now I'm high. 
So I don't remember everything that's in the breaks, but it was just a walk down memory lane. Nice. And we have, and we have, these are, these are good breaks that are like totally ours. You know, like I didn't snag a cartoon from anywhere or anything else, you know. I did like I did like uh, Bimbo's initiation though being on there. That was cool. It had to be Bimbo for the first one. It had to be damn Bimbo. Yeah. Uh, and there are a fuckload of really cool Max Fleischer, but it also seems like the breaks. Ten minutes seems to be the sweet spot for the breaks. Yeah. Or then it starts getting old, so it's like I'm just gonna have to hurry. Uh. And it's really convenient that I can watch the stream in the smoking room on my tablet. So I pretty much know when to come back. Yeah. And start the show again. So that's really handy. Um, But this was just fun. Um, Black Dress Warehouse. I included Black Dress Warehouse this time. Um. I forget if I included it or not, or not, but I found a. Oh, what was it? Red Nameless, Rubber Ball. No, I did Red Rubber Ball. Nameless Henchman Nameless, Warehouse. Nameless Henchman Warehouse. Yes. Yeah. Which I think I think is also across the street from the Chicory Dump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and just a lot of just fun stuff. Yeah, that's ours. Um, I found yeah, that's that's ours. Yeah, I found you in the parking lot of Home Depot singing to people, making yeah. up songs about the people in the parking lot. I remember that. That was a good. This one. is this is awesome. This is going into the breaks. Yeah, that was cute. I like that. They had short hair, I think. So I'm kind of thinking, so like some of the things I'm planning on for the future of the stream, because I'm going to get it fixed again. Uh, For the breaks, I am thinking of resurrecting the Pope's hyperactive fun time show. That's break length. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Okay. Cuz we have such a great opening for that. Yeah. With the with the with the Woody and Flag and Ed yeah. Wood in the background and then getting into the title sequence with the guy in the in the electric chair. Yeah. You know. And then we'll we'll add different bits and then roll back into the show and just set it, you know, make a series and maybe I'll just do it for one break. Just make that one break. The first break is the Pope's hyperactive fun time show. And that'll be it. And then uh, I'll do as many of those I can until I run out of the footage. And I'll wind up using that other place, man. It'll be in serious wind. It'll be in fucking Dr. Vornoff, anytime where I have somebody needing to watch shit on TV. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's going to be some offshoot of the Pope on film. You know? 
Um, so then maybe I make a different show and reuse all the footage again with the different show for the second break. So I can mix and match until I can come up with some other ideas. Yeah. But that's, that's the future of the breaks. The future of the stream itself is getting it into scene collections like I was kind of talking about before. And I don't want to get into it again. You'll see what I'm talking about when you see Bunny Versus. Hey, I had a stream again. You'll see yeah. what I'm talking about easier. Hey, I had an idea of uh, maybe uh, old school streaming Steve's historic approximations here on my tablet. The way I used to back in the day where if I had a, oh. if I had a chat that was really good, I just set up my old tablet like really crappy and just film myself doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually have it all set up right here, ready to go. I just need to press the live button. It's very low def, old school. I would be streaming on the Pope on film. Yeah, yeah. Go it'd be it. crappy. Yeah, it'd be crappy, but uh, I, this is a really good story. So, uh, starting live video. There you go. Okay, so technically we should be live right now. So that's exciting. So then, once we get it set down to scene collections. Yeah. Then I'll be showing you how to do your own scenes. And then I'll set up the remote control so you can go through the screens when you're ready. Yeah. So again, Steve's approximations as an example. You know. Then I will Check out that plugin for sending the stream to to multiple streaming places. Yeah, because I've seen a plugin that's supposed to allow you to split the stream, so you can broadcast the same stream to YouTube, to Facebook, to Twitter, to anywhere that you can send a stream to. So then we could start streaming everywhere possible. Which would be awesome. And at that point, I think I'm going to hold off on improving the stream. Like, like we're going to stop there and just do some shows. You know, work the kinks out of the presentations, all that kind of stuff. Now, here's an interesting twist. Okay. okay. I took a look and the URLs, the poponfilm.com and undeadcow.com are both available again. Really? So I can get both of them for two years for $80. Okay. Okay. So that's good right there. Now, since I am back into building computers, I have a computer that's not doing much. The only thing it's doing is it's running my Plex server, 
and it's acting as backup storage. So those two things. So I'm thinking of doing some upgrades to that machine so it can do a bit more. I'll put in a five terabyte hard drive and I'll set up another web server, my own web server on that machine. Okay. So So I'll have to set up the feed again, and then I'll take that feed and I'll send the feed that's coming directly off of our website to SoundCloud, to MixCloud, to iHeartRadio, to all that. Yeah. And I believe I would. So in that way, I believe we could still be on SoundCloud by just changing the feed and we would be on SoundCloud for free. Awesome. Okay. I see what you're saying. And SoundCloud is something like 150 bucks a month, uh, a year. Sorry, 150 bucks a year, I think. Jeez. I would have to check with Jeannie for what it currently is. Oh, guys. So that'll also help cut costs. But like with anything technical, the the more you're willing to do yourself, the more power you have. Yes. Okay. So if I put up my my own web server, it opens up a lot of other possibilities. Like, I would actually be able to write an app for the Pope on film. So that if you wanted to watch the stream, you would watch it on the Pope on Film app. If you wanted to listen to past episodes, it would all be on the Pope on Film app. Including our shorts and our breaks and all that. And... And I can also take all that and then... Much more easily put up a Pope on Film Roku channel. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Eddie Wood video is still like a really good idea. And maybe I'll go back to that. I don't know, but. I think the next step would be let's just do a Pope on Film channel. And after we stream them, we'll put them on the Pope on Film channel on the Roku. So if you have Roku, you can access our show. We can put up we can put up whatever other content we want to do. Like um like with the stream, okay? Because it's yeah. still all going to be based around the stream, okay? Because it makes it makes the presentation nice. But maybe Doctor Vonoff will start horror hosting public domain movies. You know, that'd be cool. Maybe he's the one who'll do that, or or you know whatever. Maybe we do special commentaries as a separate stream 
for all the movies that have Woodmas holidays. Like Jailbait, Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know, let's let's make the the Woody and Holiday specials. You know? Yeah. And I thought because a lot of new technology has come out that's made this easier. I just haven't messed with it too terribly much. But it's a lot easier to catch what somebody looks like from a picture into a 3D model than it used to be. Okay? So what I would like to do is I'd like to get some pictures of you and make a better model than I have than the Albert B. Fall model that I used. Yeah. You know, get something that looks like you. Except dress different. So we're, we're going to get you some robes. And we're going to put you at the pulpit of the Woodian Church. And then I want you to read... I want you to send me just audio of you reading some of the lessons of wood. Wow. This is a, this is a big undertaking. Yeah. Okay. We'll start slow. <clears throat> yeah. We'll start slow. And I think that's where I want to leave it from now. I actually have a, load more to say i've been having like a, a a lot of really huge creative bursts lately that's good and that's not all of it yet but i'm really excited about the streaming and i'm excited in the directions that this can take us and yeah. I, I think it's really going to be good and it, I, I think i think it's all going to be worth these ass aches that we're going through right now yeah down for that so that is it so that is it um confidence is still high good good good, good. um i don't want to do the coronavirus the coronavirus tagline <laughs> anymore okay uh so i need a new tagline you need a new tagline you need a new tagline I buy that for a dollar. No. A pol- upholster that, Jesus. <laughs> uh, non-stick pads, yes, please. I like that. I'm going with yeah. that. So, okay. yes. This week's bunny versus tagline. Non-stick pads. Yes, please. Nice. I came up with that one. That one was me. And cut on that. Cut on that. Okay. It is time for Steve's Historic Approximations. This is a big one. I am really proud of it. It's in three acts, and uh, it sort of exploded. But okay, let's do this. Buddy! Yes. 
If you're like me, then you're no doubt a big fan of this podcast, The Pope on Film. I mean, who is it nowadays in this day and age? Who isn't a fan? But only real fans, true, hardcore fans who have been with us since the beginning know two facts about the both of us. Two undeniably really real and in no way made up on the spot facts about you and I, America's hottest podcasting couple, Bunny and Steve. First and foremost, the first fact, which is about you, Bunny, and again, not made up on the spot, is the fact that when you are not doing this podcast, you are hard at work translating the Bible into Klingon, which, of course, you're fluent in. So, Bunny, yeah. I know that I hate to put you on the spot, but uh, why don't you give us a little bit of the Klingon Bible, Bunny? Uh, how about John three sixteen? John three sixteen. Hey, don't forget your microphone. Okay, there you go. Okay. <clears throat> Got to be all dramatic for the audio version. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know. Ah, ha ha. He says ha. Ha 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 ha. And once you know Klingon, it is oh, so yes. much more moving. So beautiful. So beautiful. So much more moving. So beautiful. And, and and because I was I was intrigued, I looked it up. The Klingon Language Institute organized a long-term project to translate the Bible into Klingon. Currently on hiatus, this project has yielded only a few books, for example, the Gospel of Mark and Psalms. So they're working on it, but it's not done. I would have thought that they had enough time, but okay, whatever. I don't, I don't mean to, to crap on your hard work. And the second thing that you would know about me yes. is that I'm a lover of history. I love it. I'm a big fan. But I'm also a storyteller. So what I like to do is I like to find a, a, a story from the history books and reword it via my own unique storytelling style. And that's what this is. Another educationally uneducational installment of Steve's Historic Approximations. Dun, 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 dun. Or shap, as I like to call it, repeatedly, annoyingly, whether anyone wants me to or not. Personally, I like the name shap. It's short, but it's to the point. It's the Jonathan Livingston Seagull of podcast segments. Anywho, on, today on the old shapity shap shap, I will be talking about a legendary sports figure, his hideous beliefs, and the way he lost all of his money, which would be sad if he wasn't such a real a-hole. I want to take this time before I begin to point out that in the beginning of the week, I was like, I actually don't have a shap lined up. This is the first time ever that I haven't had a shap uh, lined up just in the barrel, just cocked and loaded. And then my wife gave me three really good ones. And I was really happy about that. And I was going to take one of the shafts that my wife gave me. But there's one that I've been putting off. There's a his, Steve's historic approximations that I've been putting off for a really long time. And I thought this week is the week that I finally just bite the bullet. So uh, 
next week I'll be doing one of the ones that my wife chose. But uh, the real crazy thing is that I'm talking about a, a sports figure who's an asshole and how he lost all of his money. The crazy thing is, wow, there's so many people I could be talking about. Yes, there is. Oh. How, how strange is that? There's so many people that, that I could be talking about. There, there are so many uh, sports a-holes that are out there. But today, I'm talking about baseball pitcher Kurt Schilling. Pitcher. Also, okay. World Series champion and a horrible, horribly bigoted man. And I, I set I set up this shaft in a three act structure. So I've got the good, the bad, and the. <laughs> so so that's my three act structure for this. So let's get to it. Curtis Montague Schilling. Don't trust anyone with the name Montague, because that's someone who will lock you up in a tower with an iron mask on, and you have to wait for the three mus to keep musketeers to come free you. But anyway. Curtis Montague Schilling. He was born in Alaska, then lived in Pittsburgh, but then he moved. He went to high school in Phoenix, Arizona. He went to Shadow Mountain High School. I know where that is. That's really weird. That's in the rich area, uh, right next to the mountains between Phoenix proper and Scottsdale. I did some speech and debate there at Shadow Mountain High School. I didn't do debate because I wasn't smart enough, but I was really good at humorous interpretation, which is basically just comedy monologues, and I, I rocked at that. But anyway, Kurt Schilling, he debuted for the Baltimore Red Sox in 1988, and he played there from 1988 to 89. Then he spent one year with the Houston Astros, and after that season, he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies in 1992, and he stayed there to the year 2000. Kurt Schilling freaking rocked it in Philly. He was the national strikeout leader in 1997 and 1998. He was chosen for the uh, All-Star Game in 97 and 98 and 99. So Kurt Schilling, uh, Curtis Montague was really making a name for himself. But as good as he was, he was upset because even though he was doing great, his team would was always ending the season with a losing record. So he actually requested to be traded to a better, more competitive team, which isn't – I didn't even know that was something you could do. I didn't even know you were allowed. I thought that you just stayed on the team until someone traded you. But apparently you can just go – can I request to go to a different to go to a different team? And they said yes. So in the year 2000, he was sent to the Arizona Diamondbacks, and his joining the team was all people flipping talked about in Arizona. Okay. Oh, Kurt Schilling is coming to Phoenix, and I'm like, okay, I, I'm not going to pretend that I know who that is or that I care. Weird that he went to Shadow Mountain High School. And then when he graduated Shadow Mountain High School, he, he went to Yavapai College where he played baseball in college. That's a college in Prescott. That's where I was born, in the small uh, town of Prescott, Arizona. In Prescott, they call it Prescott. So uh, I'm from Prescott. So it's Prescott. It's Prescott, Arizona, which is weird. But anyway. 
Uh, Curtis Montague Schilling played in Phoenix for the Arizona Diamondbacks from 2000 to 2003. And in 2001, the Diamondbacks beat the Yankees. And oh my God, it was loud in Phoenix for like three days straight. It was just like like almost like a like a like a week of of the entire town celebrating. It was it was scary. A so baseball much. player. No no no! In two thousand and one, the Diamondbacks beat the Yankees and won the World oh. Series. And and I swear, the entire town of Phoenix just celebrated for for like three days straight. Just so much gun shooting in the air, honking, people yelling. Oh, it was such a big thing. So in two thousand and four, Curtis Montague was traded to the Boston Red Sox for like I don't know five thousand lame players. Like, hey, yeah. we'll trade one Kurt Schilling for six guys that that stink. So Curtis played in Boston from 2004 to 2007 and entered the Red Sox Hall of Fame because largely due in part to him, not entire. It wasn't entirely his his doing. He had a really good team behind him, but largely due to him. uh, They broke the curse of the Bambino, which is a whole different chap in and of itself. But uh, uh, here's the cliff notes. The Red Sox didn't win a World Series from 1918 to 2004. But And one of the main reasons that that curse was broken was because of Kurt Schilling. Because of him, the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004. And then again in 2007, he tried playing after 2007, but injuries sidelined him. And he announced his retirement in 2009. Boom! Cut on act one of this chat. Curtis Montague Schilling had a real impressive Major League Baseball career. Now let's move on to act two. Kurt Schilling is a far right wing bigoted asshat and fuck him a million times over that douchebagger. Guy's really horrible. Guy is real. So bad. Um... His controversies alone could fill like five different chaps. So like where to begin in 2004, while the Red Sox were campaigning for John Kerry for president, he campaigned for George Bush in 2007. He was constantly attacking Hillary Clinton for how dare she be against the war in Iraq. And of course, he campaigned for Donald J. Trump in 2016, the douche waffle. Oh, and, and and when Benghazi happened, oh, Curtis Montague Schilling got his panties all bunched up. The man hated Obama. He opposes same-sex marriage. He's a born-again Christian. And here's something I just want to take some time and discuss. He has a, a son and a daughter. He named his son Gehrig Schilling. Okay. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a crime. Gehrig's a last name. You've given your yeah. kid two last names. That's like if Rey Mysterio named his son uh, Dominic. Instead, he changed it to Guerrero Mysterio. Yes. You know, that's ridiculous. And so is Gehrig Schilling. But anyway, in 2014, he got into a day-long argument on Twitter against evolution. 
Okay. In 2015, ESPN uh, had him cover the Little League World Series, but they fired him after he shared a meme comparing Muslims to Nazis. Okay. Uh, uh, Curtis Montague Schilling's tweet said, only 5 to 10% of Muslims are extremists. In 1940, only 7% of Germans were Nazis. How did that go? And I would like to take this time to say legally that no, Curtis Montague Schilling does not have a collection of Nazi memorabilia. Okay. He has a World War II memorabilia collection. And does that include numerous uh, actual Nazi uniforms with swastikas and uniforms worn by SS members? Yes. But that doesn't mean he has a Nazi costume. He's just really big into World War II. Yeah. 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 So he doesn't have... he did. Kurt Schilling doesn't have a Nazi costume, uh, a Nazi collection. Okay, just want to make that clear. He does not. So maybe you don't talk about it. I could go on and on about Kurt Schilling. He doxed people on Twitter in 2015 for making fun of his family. He used his bat to destroy a replay machine during a game once. Yeah. Uh. He's a he's a big defender of the Confederate flag. He's constantly arguing with managers. And so ESPN hired him to be a baseball analyst, but they fired him in 2016 after he shared a wildly anti-trans meme. Remember in 2015 and 2016 when all of these parents were saying, oh, what's stopping a pervert from wearing a wig and a dress yeah. and going to the bathroom at Target where your daughter is? So, so yeah, that's what uh, uh, Curtis Montague Schilling was sharing, some real far-right, transphobic, J.K. Rowling-type shit. So yeah. ESPN fired his ass. ESPN fired his ass. And, and of course he played the, oh my goodness, I was fired for being a Jesus-loving conservative card. Yeah. Because you know who's really persecuted? White, straight, Christian males. Oh! In 2018, he started sharing a bunch of QAnon stuff, and now he works for Glenn Beck's conservative outlet, The Blaze, which should not surprise anyone. Oh, okay. Lord. So cut on Act 2. Uh, Kurt Schilling had a great career in Act 1, and in Act 2, his belief system is cracked. So yes. let's move on to Act 3, which would be sad if it didn't happen to the most deserving guy in the world. Okay. Curtis Montague Schilling is surprisingly into gaming? Okay. Uh, for starters, he's really obsessed with this one tabletop World War II game called Advanced, Advanced Squad Leader. And he always tried to go to the Advanced Squad Leader convention every year. And one year, because of baseball, he couldn't go to the Advanced Squad Leader convention. So he created his own. Okay. And so Kurt Schilling started... 
the Advanced Squad Leader Open, which is a tournament for this one tabletop board game. It began in 1993, and it still happens even now in 2020, which is weird. But baseball player Kurt Schilling started a con, and it's still a thing. He was also a huge fan of Warcraft and EverQuest. Yeah. And that's so surprising. Who knew that gamers might have bigoted beliefs? The the creators of EverQuest 2 even created a custom avatar for him. And in 2006, for three days, this is so weird. Um, EverQuest 2 added an evil Kurt Schilling character. And every time and every time he was defeated in the game, Sony would donate five dollars to Kurt Schilling's favorite charity. So he's a gamer. Kurt Schilling is a bigot and a gamer. He's a baseball legend, a QAnon conspiracist, and a transphobic gamer. Good to know. So it made sense (laughs) that near the end of his career, Kurt Schilling was like, "Uh uh-huh, what should I I do when I end my baseball career? It should be something I like, something I'm passionate about. Huh, maybe I can do something with video games. So it's important to note that throughout his entire career, Curtis Montague Schilling made over $115 million in Major League Baseball. He took that money and used it to start a video game company in 2006 that was called 38 Studios. 38 was his number. Yeah, okay. So at first, he put in $50 million of his own money. And then he got a bunch of other backers that put in a bunch of other money. And then he he got $75 million that came from the state of Rhode Island in the form of a loan. Gee, I'm sure that's going to work out just fine. Yes. He, 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 he opened 38 studios in Rhode Island. And Rhode Island said, hey, uh, you guys are... Kurt Schilling is like, oh, we promised jobs, so many jobs, it's going to revitalize Rhode Island. We just need a little bit of money. So Rhode Island said, okay, well, here's $75 million, but it's a loan. Don't miss any payments. And he's like, hey, I'm Kurt Schilling. Nothing bad's going to happen. So in 2012, 38 Studios released their first game. It was called Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. He had some big names working on this thing. The artwork was done by Todd McFarland. The plot of the game, the like world building and the lore and the characterization and everything was written by legendary fantasy author R.A. Salvatore. The music was written by uh, like this famous uh, game uh songwriter who wrote all the music for like banjo kazooie and donkey kong country and stuff like that so like so we had big names working on this game and the and the game was first announced at comic-con 
in 2010 and it made a big to-do. And when the game came out, it had huge reviews. People loved Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. Uh, people really dug it. Uh, Digital Spy gave it five stars. IGN gave it nine out of ten. It was very well received. And Curtis Montague Schilling came out and said, oh, it, it, at the 90-day mark, it sold 1.2 million copies. This game is a huge hit, and we're working on the sequel now. Uh, I don't know how much you can trust Montague the Bigot, but anyway, things looked great for 38 Studios. A few months later, the company would be owned by the state of Rhode Island. So, uh, so, so, okay. So the game came out in February of 2012. And Curtis Montague claimed that it was a big successful game and that and that they made a ton of money and that it sold a lot and that everybody liked it and stuff like that. But uh, so we don't know if that's true or not. But one thing I can tell you is that by May of 2012, uh, 38 Studios employees stopped getting paid. Okay. So there were... I guess financial problems. And a few weeks later, uh, Kurt Schilling came out and said that the company was filing for bankruptcy. This caused 38 Studios to default on the Rhode Island loan. And so the state of Rhode Island gained ownership of 38 Studios and canceled plans for a sequel to Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. Okay. Kurt Schilling put $50 million of his own money into the company, but later said in interviews that after paying off all the investors and then he was sued by the state of Rhode Island and there was a long court battle, that by the time he was done with all of that, he lost all $115 million, which is a sad story, but it did happen to Curtis Montague Schilling. So... Hooray! 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 It couldn't have happened to a more deserving person. You know? No. It couldn't have happened to a better person. <laughs> because he has really bigoted beliefs and, uh, yeah, absolutely true story. Like, a legendary baseball player and bigot lost all of his money in a, in, with a role-playing video game. That apparently is okay. Rhode Island sold the company to another video game company and they re-released the game in like PlayStation 4 and like they still sell it and apparently the game is really, really good. So there you go. Yeah, Pac-Man. Thanks, Eleanor. But yeah, apparently uh, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. You ever want to play that? It's available. It, it was created by Todd McFarlane and R.A. Salvatore and a notorious bigot. Yes. Yes, there are, those are all video games. Thank you for your help, Eleanor. I don't know what I would do without you. Okay, gotcha. 10-4. Okay, thank you. So that's it for Steve's Historic Approximations this week. I love that story because uh, Kurt Schilling is kind of a horrible person. And yes. I think it's funny because he's 
kind of a douche waffle. But anyway, uh, be sure and join us next week. And it's, we, and it's good to call them out. Yes, it is good to call them out. Next week, we will be discussing the, the true story of the uh, uh, legislator who was just uh, elected and is dead. Okay. Really? It might be one of our first zombie legislators. Oh, it's not? Man. We have a zombie legislator. We're going to be talking about it. But that's next week. Be sure to join us next week for more Steve's historic approximations. No, not yet. Not yet. But I like your your moxie. And cut on that. Funny. Yes. We still have a movie to get to. We need to talk about Joe Exotic. We need to talk about Back to the Future. We need to talk about, um, unfortunately, we need to talk about Paul Walker. But before we get to any of that, maybe we should take a break. Should we take a break? Yes. We should take a break. I didn't ask you, kids. I asked you, Bunny. You are not Bunny, okay? I don't see a top hat on you. You guys, you guys smoking the reefer? You kids smoking the reefer? Uh, yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. Ask him, Bunny. Bunny does not have bunny ears. He's not hiding them under his top hat. I don't know where these rumors get started. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we will be right back with more of the Pope on Film after this. Nice. Okay. Break. Here was a brave little soldier. When we were all playing together, we used to play he was really brave, like he was just charging the enemy out of desperation. He was playing that. But when we were alone, he knew. He was surrendering. I'm here, Boop Podcasts. Saturday night at the movies. Kiss meets the Phantom. And 
and we're back with more of the Popon film. Act three, money. Act three. Act three. Yes, Bunny, my friend, it is time once again for the Pope on Film podcast to gradually stroll on into the third and final act of the show. And for the uninitiated out there in the ether, the third act of the Pope on Film podcast is wherein we finally, eventually, discuss our platinum exclusive executive style, high class and available only through this limited time offer, Movie of the Week. And this week, we try to postpone Christmas for one more week or two with a look at the Little Scene 1994 comedy known as Tammy and the T-Rex. Funny. Yes. Funny. Yes. Question. How is Tammy the name of the chick who marries bird person? Yes, Tammy is the name of the of the, and and then the and then it's confusing because it, the credits have her listed as Tanny, but it's no that fucked me up. Okay, I'm glad you said it because I was starting to think I was nuts, but I was like, no, Jeannie saw it too. It said Tanny, T A N N Y. Opening credits have a different name than the name of the movie. Yeah. It's like it's like when you're watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 and the credits say Attack of the VI Creatures. Yeah. Or at the end of The Brain That Wouldn't Die when it's when it, it's the movie's listed as the head that wouldn't die. But see now the thing is is when I saw it come up uh I was just like, well, I I guess I must have just been mishearing mishearing you. I thought you said Tammy. It was nope. Tanny. Okay, so like I didn't think anything of it, but when I went to search for the trailer on YouTube, I put in Tanny and the T-Rex. Now that I know that that's the real name, couldn't find a fucking thing until I, I put in Tammy. I think one of the reasons why that happened is because he made the movie... And then, for whatever reason, in Italy, they said, you know what? This could be a family film. We're going to take out all the dirty stuff and release it as a family movie. Uh-huh. And I think when they did that, they may have changed the credits. But then it, a couple of years ago, they got the movie and added the dirty stuff back in it. But maybe they didn't change the credits that were changed in Italy. Yes. That's the only way that I can uh, try and make sense of, of that weird thing in the opening. But, Bunny, here's the, here's the opening question for you, okay? How the F would you classify this film? Let's say you work at a video store. Let's say you yes. work at a video store. Or let's say you're the guy in charge of writing the the descriptions of movies that are going to go on Netflix. Where where would I file it, I think is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Okay. 
Because that's a difficult question because it's it, parts of it feel like a family friendly comedy. Then yeah. it's ridiculously fucking gory. And then sometimes it wants to be a sex comedy, but with no sex. And it's just it's so confusing trying to figure out how to classify this movie. Okay, I would put it somewhere in the ballpark of killer clowns from outer space. So a horror comedy. Yes. Okay. Okay. And it had gore. It was just significantly better than this. <laughs> okay. So, but yeah, the story of the making of this film, Frank and Hooker on the other side. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So, the story of the making of the film is really simple a guy had an animatronic T Rex for a few weeks, and before he had to send it to a theme park, he called his movie making friend and said, Can you do something with this? And the guy threw together a film that's very Ed Woodian. Yes. You know, reminds me of uh, like, uh, Hey, we've got a motorized octopus that doesn't move. Mm hmm. I can make something with this. It's got that same sort of spirit. So the guy threw together a, a a movie, and that's a good story. And I feel that most podcasts would just focus on that. But I went deeper. I went yes. deeper looking into the history of this film. And um, uh, when I picked the film, I had no idea that I knew who the director was of Tammy and the T-Rex. Yes. Um, and, and so I looked, I, I was, I, when you look into the director's life and his career, yes. this movie makes perfect sense. Yes. If you just sit down and watch the film, you, you might be confused, but when you take this deep dive into the director's life and career. This movie makes 100% sense. I understand this movie now. I 100% understand every aspect of this film. So okay. I want to talk about the director of Tammy and the T-Rex, okay? okay? He's a guy named Stuart Raphael. R-A-F-F-I-L-L. -L. And in the world of uh, bad movies, that name holds a lot of weight. Okay? Yes. So just get ready, Bunny. Okay? Yes. This is a mini chef because I love this man. Okay. So Stuart Raphael, he was born in England, but he moved to the U.S. at age 18. He wanted to break into movies. How does he do that? Well, Stuart Raphael always liked animals and exotic animals, so he started working in Hollywood as an animal supervisor for movies. Okay, so he's working in like the 50s and the early 60s as an animal supervisor, animal trainer. He's really good with animals, and uh, he's uh, supervising animals for movies and TV shows, and eventually he starts his own company. He's got a ton of exotic animals, and he rents them out, trained tigers, lions, and monkeys, 
for Hollywood, this is his big break. He's renting out these animals for movies. The way that I see it in my head, he's sort of a reverse Joe Exotic. Okay. Stuart Raphael is like Joe Exotic if he just didn't do meth. Okay. You know, he's like, hey, I'm really good with animals. I've got these exotic animals. I'm going to train them. I'm going to rent them out for movies. And Disney's like, hey, we're the Disney Corporation, and it's the 60s, and we're making some weird-ass shit right now. Annette yeah. Funicello's monkey's uncle and, like, all of these, like, uh, like uh, movies for the wonderful world of Disney, you know, where Dan Haggerty's out befriending a freaking bear and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. So... So in the 60s, he's giving monkeys and tigers to Disney. He, 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 uh, he supplied all the animals for Disney's Tarzan movie in the 60s. And then they turned it into a TV show. And he did all the animals for the Disney Tarzan TV show. And silly Disney comedies like 1967's Monkeys Go Home. Yeah, that was all. Yeah. That was all him. He supplied the monkeys. Okay. So he was good with animals. And uh, he, he, the first time that he tasted fame is he's supplying all the animals for Disney's Tarzan TV show. One of the monkeys goes nuts and attacks their Tarzan. And, Tar yes. and the Tarzan guy sues Stuart Rayfield. That was him. He got sued. And Stuart Rayfield's like, oh, man, I'm getting sued by Tarzan. This is so embarrassing. On the other hand... Everyone is America is talking about me and my monkeys. <laughs> like Rafael's name is suddenly in every newspaper in America, right? So he was so good with animals that in 1971, he makes a movie. He's like, okay, I've been in Hollywood for like a decade. It's time for me to make movies. He saves up a ton of money, a shit ton of money, and he writes, produces, and directs a movie. 1971, Dan Haggerty family drama called The Tender Warrior. Okay. I have no idea what this is, but he wrote, produced, and directed it. It was Seward Raphael's baby, right? Okay. Okay. Um, saved up a ton of money. He made the film himself. He sold it to Warner Brothers. He's like, I wrote and produced and directed this film. And here, I will sell it to you. And Warner Brothers goes, okay, here's some money. Uh, guess we'll release it sometime. Uh, maybe uh, the, B, the B film in a double feature, some other crappy kids film. Maybe do a little bit of advertising. I don't know. We're going to have to add like crazy, make it shorter. And Stuart Rafiel is just there, just going. Rrr, rrr, rrr. Okay, look, this is my baby. And you know what? Fuck it. I've got some money left over. I'm buying my movie back. He okay. sold movie to Warner Brothers, didn't like how they treated it, and fucking bought it back from them. Okay. You gotta... You you gotta respect the balls on that, you know. Yeah. That like he cared about his first movie so much that like no, if you're not gonna treat it right, fuck you. He bought the rights back from Warner Brothers, released it himself, made a decent amount of money. Yeah. Good. Like already right there, already haven't even gotten to the big movies. 
already, I really like this Stuart Rafael guy. Yeah. This is already a good story. Okay, so um, his new career as a director takes off, and he's known for making you make good family movies, you make good uh, family adventures, you make good adventures, and another thing, you make them cheap. And when you're a director that can work on the cheap for some uh, well-rounded family-type films, you get a lot of work. So he starts to wreck. He starts getting hired to be a director, and he's directing all of these movies. And uh, he's a lot of them involve kids and animals, and he's he's making a good life for himself, making these like throughout all of 1970. If you saw some film where some kid is in the wilderness or some family is lost in the woods, there's a and there's like a tiger or a bear or whatever in it. There's a good chance this guy wrote and directed that movie. That was the type of films he was doing. Okay, Okay. so. In 1984, he made his departure film. I can't believe it's this guy. But in 1984, he directs and helps write, of all films, he did the Philadelphia Experiment. Really? Yeah, the guy who directed the Philadelphia Experiment also did Tammy and the T-Rex. That's huge! That's a fun movie. Yeah, uh, a great movie. John Carpenter. Fun. John Carpenter was like, "Hey, we should do a. Has anyone did a horror movie about the Philadelphia Experiment? No. Okay, I'll write the film. Okay, so here's Act One. There you go. Okay, so here's Act Two. And what do I do for Act Three? I know the people in the boat can get revenge. Oh shit! This is just the fog. I already did this movie. <laughs> Just the fog. Oh, fuck. Okay. Somebody else do this. And they said, well, we'll do it. We need to do it cheap and quickly. You know what? Stuart Rafael. So they give him a call. And yeah, he did the Philadelphia experiment with freaking Nancy Alice. Yeah. Yeah. And then in that same year, because because like I saw the Philadelphia experiment once or twice. But this next one is bigger for me in my mind. And this could be a shap in its own right. But in 1984, he did two movies. He did The Philadelphia Experiment. And he also did, of all the films, again, he did The Ice Pirates. Okay. Oh, man, the story of the making of that freaking film could easily be a shat. But long story short, uh, Star Wars was real popular. Uh what Return of the Jedi came out in '83, so uh, this was that period in time. All of these Star Wars copycats are coming out, and uh, uh, the studio, the studio was like, "Oh, we have this film, Ice Pirates, big budget. We're talking thirty million dollars. We've got some great actors lined up for it, some really great names, and this is going to be a science fiction epic, and people are going to love it." But um, the studio was suddenly in dire financial straits. One guy was ripping off the company. Another person came in and he made the company worse. And there was like a slap or a fist fight. But anyway, uh, suddenly this new CEO of the studio comes in and he's like, we are so we are running out of money so bad that here's the new rule. Every film from here on out, 
cannot go over eight million dollars. Yeah. And so the studio was all like, oh shit, the Ice Pirates was going to be like this $30 million epic. Now we need someone to suddenly turn this big budget sci fi film into a low budget sci fi film. Maybe yeah. make it a comedy. That'll, that'll make sense with the low budget. Okay. Who can we get to quickly turn this big budget science fiction epic into a low budget science fiction comedy? Stuart Raffel. Yeah. So I was seven when that movie came out and I couldn't, I saw it like twice when I was seven. Other than that, I've seen it a couple of times on TV, but like, I couldn't tell you what the movie was about. I just remember that when I was seven, I thought it was the coolest fucking shit. Really? Yeah. When I was seven, I just thought, oh, man, Ice Pirates, oh, so cool. And they're in the spaceship, and they're going to, like, cut off their ding-dong. And, oh, no, now they're escaping. Oh, man, this is so fun. I thought it was like a, like Star Wars, but if they made it lighthearted and cheap. Yeah. When I was a kid, I loved Ice Pirates. And one of these days, I want to go back, and I might soon because Stuart Raphael. This yeah. is an amazing career. We haven't even gotten to the best part yet. We're almost there. Well, okay, okay. Well, just to stay on Ice Pirates for a second longer. Oh, yeah. Like, like I have Ice Pirates. Mm hmm But I don't think I, I... And literally, I don't know if I ever actually sat down and watched Ice yeah. Pirates. I think yeah. there were times when it was on in the background of my life on HBO when it first like came yes, out. When it, yeah. Yeah, like nineteen I remember like nineteen eighty six, nineteen eighty seven, like yeah, Robert Ulrich was always on like HBO or UHF, you know? Yeah. And then and then I I I haven't like really watched it since then. And then when Jeannie had had mentioned that she liked it and she watched it a couple of times, I was like, you know, I should really give it another look. Okay. Yeah. And I put it on and I started watching it. And it was like, what? Who? Robert Urich? Robert Urich. Okay. But then, but then like, he was capable enough of an actor. But, but the thing that I love about the film is that, like, the small parts are, like, shit, Angelica Houston, fucking Ron Perlman, Bruce Valanche, John Carradine. Like, like yeah. it, it's impressive. I, right. Ex exactly. And when I started seeing these people, I turned it off and I was like, okay, I got to watch Ice Pirates again and really give it its due. To give it a fair judgment, because I, I fucking saw Ron Perlman, and I was like, <laughs> I was not expecting that, yeah. you know. Ron Perlman makes makes it command more attention. David Carradine makes it demand more attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look, my goal is to get all this stuff. And then, like, the character of Killjoy, who keeps appearing over and over again. I think he's the guy who, like, is pretending to be a monk 
just so he can not get his like privates cut off when he's a slave. That guy was a defensive lineman for like the, the NFL. And he was like this big, massive, imposing guy. But for whatever reason, Hollywood said he could be the next Joe Namath that we put in movies. Okay. Putting him in a bunch of movies, so it's like all of these serious actors, like like Robert Urich and Angelica Houston, and some football guy. Yeah, and it's like I couldn't tell you who he was, but I knew that in when I was seven years old, I knew who the guy was. I was like, "Hey, that's that football player." Yeah, yeah, that was like a draw that I remember when I was a kid. Well, the big one was Joe Namath. Yeah, yeah. you know. Joe Namath, who Joe Namath, who was basically discount Burt Reynolds. He was he was Dollar Tree Burt Reynolds. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. When you watched uh, when you watched a Joe Namath movie, like see something or other, or what? I, I don't know. There were a couple of them. It's the same kind of movie. Yeah. You would put these two together on the video bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. A Burt Reynolds, mm, Smokey and the Bandit something. Yeah, I just got the Cannonball Run. Yeah. I haven't seen that in forever, but it's... Yeah. And you would put the Joe Namath movies right next to those. Yeah. You know how, like, someone... So yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so, Bunny. Yes. So, Stuart Raphael, um, Philadelphia Experiment, Ice Pirates. Okay. In 1988, he made his award-winning film. Okay? Yeah. Award-winning. Award-winning. Okay. He returned to his roots... His family-friendly film roots with an award-winning film, which we have talked about on the podcast before a couple of times. I am talking about a little movie called Mac and Me. Oh. And to be clear, when I say it's award-winning, he did win the Razzie for Worst Director. Oh. He did Mac and Me because McDonald's said, hey, we want to make a movie. And they're like, okay, what is it? What, what do you want it to be about? And McDonald's was like, I don't care, but it, it, we want to make a movie so that people see it. And then afterwards, they go and, and, and buy McDonald's. I don't know. E.T. was popular. Let's do another E.T. Who can we get to make a cheap E.T. ripoff for McDonald's Stuart Raphael. I mean, this is 100% a Stuart Raphael movie. Let's get yeah. Stuart Raphael. He did Mac and Me! And doesn't it sort of kind of make sense now that the person who did Mac and Me would also make Tammy and the T-Rex? Yes. Right? I love I this. So. It makes so much sense. But to be fair... Personally, this- personally, when it comes to this movie... Directorially, I'm willing to give him a pass. I have too many other people to blame. 
And also and blame them when it I comes will. to Sammy and the T-Rex. Yes. Another thing that I give him credit for is that another Ed Woodian aspect of Tammy and the T-Rex is that he said, okay, we need to make this in just a small amount of time because we only have the animatronic T-Rex for a small amount of time. And so every location that he did for this movie is within 30 minutes from his own home. Yeah. And that's such an Ed Wood thing. And you have all of these weird character actors through the entire movie because, like, he spent decades in Hollywood. He can get Buck Flowers for a weekend. Buck fucking Flowers. That any, is in my goddamn notes. Any film with Buck Flowers. Like, you know, get, get some points, you know? Yeah. Buck like, Flowers. Like, so now how many... Pope on film movies has Buck Flowers. Should he go into a Pope Hall of Fame or something? Maybe. My favorite, like a lot of people, when they when they mention Buck Flowers, I, I will say that when I saw Back to the Future with Amber in theaters, the the last night of the Hornbeck, like yeah. like uh, when Marty finally went back to the future. And you see the, the the bench and the homeless guy there. I just yeah. excitedly lean towards her. That's Buck Flowers, legendary character actor. That's Buck Flowers. You know, I'm so excited to like point out Buck Flowers. He also appears in the second one. So And it's like, so funny because like like you get certain character actors who tend to like specialize. Yeah, you know, like um, the guy from the Ghostbusters, the EPA guy. I forget yes. what his fucking name is. Yes. Specialized in being a comedic asshole. Yeah, yeah. He was the same character in Real Genius. He was the same fucking character in Die Hard. Just tying it all together, we could also be talking about Fred Willard. Yes. Very good as like the he 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 was the authority figure so much. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking Fred Willard. But Buck Flowers specialized in being a dirtbag. Yeah. So I saw the Buck Flowers. And that's where I like him the best. I saw that Buck Flowers was in the movie, so I'm like, okay, let me look for Buck Flowers. Where's Buck Flowers? Where's Buck Flowers? There's a drunk uncle in yeah. my head. I'm imagining that that's Buck, Buck Flowers because he's always the drunk, but that's not Buck Flowers. Where's Buck Flowers in this movie? And the first time I watched it, I said, Steve, calm down. When Buck Flowers shows up, you'll know it. Yeah. So, so, so let me explain something. Okay. So when it comes to the police, okay. So first off, the boss is Sheriff Black. Get it? Because he's a black guy. Wow. Way to still be topical, South Park. So the sheriff is Sheriff Black. And then there's three other uh, police officers. There's Buck Flowers. He's the one who is uh, dealing with like dead, bloody corpses while also eating. Yeah. And I love all of that. You should come hunting with us, uh, Sergeant Black. 
I swear the other two guys were bit players from Dukes of Hazard. They could pass for it. Yeah. But I, I never swear watched the Duke of Hazard, so I wouldn't know. I'm pretty sure that at least one of them was actually in Dukes of Hazard as a cop. And so, you know, and George Raffel has been on, you know, in TV and movies since the 60s, and he can get people for a weekend. Yeah. I'm pretty sure two of those guys, at least one of the two, was in uh, Dukes of Hazard. Pretty sure. Okay. But but here's why I wanted to do the deep dive on Stuart Rafiel and his career, because a lot of people, a lot of other podcasts would go, oh, uh, it, it shouldn't surprise you to say that the person who made Tammy and the T-Rex also made Mac and me. Yeah, but he also did fucking Philadelphia Experiment. He did yeah. so much. And Mac and me didn't destroy his career because a few years later, he directed Mannequin 2 on the move. Oh. Yay. And that's another piece of the puzzle because Mannequin starred uh the older the older woman from Sex in the City. Yes, Kim Cattrall. And that guy uh who was a part of the Brat Pack. Um Andrew McCarthy. Andrew, Andrew McCarthy. And then, uh, so when they went to make Mannequin 2, it's like uh, Kim Cattrall didn't want to be in it. Matthew McCarthy didn't want to be in it. And so how do you make Mannequin 2 without your two leads? So he got a different mannequin, and the star was Meshach Taylor, the gay comedic relief from Mannequin. Okay. And that's a piece of the puzzle because I him? love the gay black guy in this week's movie. Yes. And basically, I didn't put that together. It's been a long time since I've seen Mannequin. But basically, in Tammy and the T-Rex, the gay black teen is doing a mannequin. Yes. I, I imagine he tried to get Meshach Taylor for Tammy and the T-Rex and he was busy or just didn't want to do it. So he just got some other black teen. You got a black teen to do it. And it's like, yeah. okay, we'll rewrite it. We'll make him a high schooler. I don't know. But but he's definitely doing a Meshach Taylor in this. Yes. And here, here's really now that shocking. you pointed out. Yeah, yeah. But here's another shocking thing. The year after Mannequin 2 on the move, Seward Rafiel wrote the Wesley Snipes action film Passenger 57. Always yeah. been on black. Stuart Rafiel wrote that. That movie was the number one movie in America. It catapulted Wesley Snipes to like a huge box office draw. That was fucking Stuart Rafiel. Stuart Rafiel is still alive. He still makes movies. What a goddamn career. Yes. You know, and when you just watch, I watched Tammy and the T Rex and I'm like, what is this? Is this a comedy? Is this a horror film? Is this a sex film? Is this a family-friendly movie? I'm so confused. And then I watched it a second time, and I was still so confused. And I'm like, who made this movie? And once I saw who made this movie and his career, I'm like, oh, shit, Tammy and the T-Rex makes absolute sense now. You know? Yes. Yes. And if you... If you... <sighs> what if you took the exact same movie and we kept him and recast this movie? 
like this movie has potential and i think i i i saw some elements that that excuse crosby i i saw some uh i saw some problem spots First song really just, hindered this movie i just want to say like denise Richards, fucking boat anchor I just want to say that Denise Richards should get an Oscar for the touching scene where she realizes that her boyfriend's brain is in the robotic T-Rex and starts crying. She should get an Oscar, not for acting, just 